Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. From 1791 to 1804, the enslaved peoples of the Caribbean's richest island rebelled for their freedom. Led by a former enslaved man turned successful planter, the rebellion on San Domingue was one of the most bloody and horrible spells of violence in modern history. Taking many forms and costing thousands of lives, the Haitian Revolution overturned an old order and put the entire new world on edge. After all of the struggle and death, the world would never be the same. On this episode, we discuss the Haitian Revolution. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 6 of the series, we're discussing American rebellions, the winners and losers that helped shape the fortune and fate of the world's first modern republic. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter at Brady Kreitzer or by searching Wartime Podcast. You can visit our Facebook page, join the conversation, it's growing every day, facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer. You can visit my author's website for news, updates, and events, bradykreitzer.com. We've got a busy summer ahead of us. And of course, you're home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different than the episodes we've been focusing on lately here in Season 6 of Wartime. Uh, Because it happens in the sphere of the United States, but not in the United States proper. Uh, By the simplest geographic designation, the Caribbean is often linked into as part of North America. It is very much its own thing. And the event we're going to deal with today does happen in the Caribbean Sea. But more importantly than that, is the impact that this event will have on the future and fortunes of the United States. Because even though it doesn't necessarily involve American soil, uh, it will be of the utmost importance in shaping American policy and American actions on all sides uh, moving into the 19th century. Of course, I'm talking about the title of today's episode, The Haitian Revolution. And the Haitian Revolution has been called by some as one of the most important events in modern history. The Haitian Revolution looms large. Haiti today is one half of a small island in the Caribbean Sea. Haiti itself is not a world superpower. It's not even close. In fact, it's one of the poorest nations in the world. But the events of 1791 through 1804 uh, put Haiti front and center on the map of some of the biggest world powers on Earth, including Thomas Jefferson's United States of America and Napoleon Bonaparte's uh, Imperial France. Heroes will be born from this event, 
and more importantly for us, a new order in the world will be challenged and established uh, that will leave many in the United States fearful in its wake. So before we jump into the historical events, and really this this one episode could be an entire season, the Haitian Revolution is enormous in terms of the time it covers and the material, but we'll try to make it uh, as succinct as possible while hitting the important notes. Uh, but Haiti itself today remains a legacy of the past. It's a historical conundrum. Uh, about 10 years ago, again, Haiti, one of the poorest countries in the world, was struck by a disastrous and terrible earthquake. Many, many people lost their lives. And when aid workers went there, uh, they were frustrated to discover that the language that the people of Haiti spoke, which is a Creole language, a combination of African languages, of French languages, sort of mixed together, was really only spoken on the island. And there were very few people outside of Haiti that spoke the language. So when these people needed help the most, the language barrier was almost insurmountable for many. And that's interesting because it's a legacy of the past and a legacy that we are going to discuss today. Uh, Haiti, historically, was considered one of the real jewels or diamonds of the Caribbean Sea in a colonial imperial world. When Christopher Columbus first sails the ocean blue in 1492, uh, he sees the island uh, and he notices a number of uh, uh, prosperous traits that it possesses. A lot of natural harbors, a lot of good places to land your ships. Uh, it becomes something of like a, a base of operations for the colonial Spanish in the 15th century into the 16th century. The entire island becomes known as Hispaniola. And all the way to the 1700s, it will hold that designation. But the story for us begins when the island is essentially split in half. Uh, in the east, you have the Spanish-controlled Santo Domingo. And in the west, you have the French-controlled Saint-Domingue. Uh, the names look virtually identical when they translate to the same thing. Uh, but the language difference is important because the cultures will be incredibly different as well. Now, this is going to be a story of France. Uh, and not just any France. Uh, a France that begins as a strong world empire and a France that is very abruptly and brutally overthrown in its own French Revolution as we get toward the 1790s. But even before the French Revolution, which is a big part of our story, the island of Saint-Domingue was prosperous. It was enormously profitable. It was a place where the primary crop grown on the island was sugarcane, and sugar as a substance was one that people in the old world were utterly and thoroughly addicted to. Sugar in their teas, sugar in their cakes. Uh, we all know today how wonderful and attractive sugar can be. Uh, my, uh, my waistline is growing just thinking about it. But people haven't changed much in 300 years. And in the 1700s, sugar was worth uh, a fortune in the imperial world. Now, if you know anything about sugarcane, my friends along the Gulf Coast will certainly know this. I had the privilege of seeing uh, an operational sugar plantation myself not too long ago. 
Uh, it's really an incredible process. Sugarcane is a long, tall grass uh, that grows relatively quickly and relatively easily. Easy for me to say. Uh, but it's very cumbersome and very difficult to harvest. Uh, today we have big machines, combines, that can harvest sugarcane. You do that by uh, cutting the, the, the cane down, stripping the leaves off of the top, uh, and taking that stalk that's left behind and, and grinding that up. Uh, but in the in the 18th century, grinding sugarcane, chopping sugarcane, this is enormously labor intensive. And of course, in the 18th century, this labor will be done not by plantation owners, not by a long shot, but by enslaved peoples from Africa brought to the island of Saint-Domingue to work. It's grueling work. It's terrible work. Uh, I had the misfortune of brushing into some of the leaves that sprout off of these sugarcane uh, plants. And if it hits you the wrong way, it's nasty. It's razor sharp at times. Uh, it's hot. It's sweaty uh, and dangerous, dangerously hot. Uh, the average lifespan of a worker, that is to say an enslaved person on the island, was just three years in Saint-Domingue because the work was so brutal and so grueling. So what I'm saying is, when you think about the horrors of, of slavery, of African slavery in the New World, uh, there was nowhere worse than Saint-Domingue. But even more than that, there was an imbalance on Saint-Domingue. On Saint-Domingue, the enslaved peoples outnumbered the white owners 12 to 1. I mean, imagine that. 12 to 1. That is looking by our modern standards. Uh, an enormously imbalanced operation. And the notion of of the incredible workload, the terrible conditions, plus that imbalance, is going to put Saint-Domingue in a position that is, is, is going to become very dangerous very quickly. Now, the island of Saint-Domingue itself produces great wealth. The Empire of France benefited from Saint-Domingue's production. Uh, and when the monarchy of France is overthrown, and you have the French Revolution that occurs in the 1790s. They still need, even though they consider themselves a new French Republic, they still need the money and wealth from Saint-Domingue. And the people on Saint-Domingue, that is to say the plantation owners, are really not looking forward to the great changes of uh, liberty and fraternity and egalitarianism that has taken over their home country. Many of them resist the revolution outright, which is easy to do when you're on the other side of the world and you're making a fortune. But the Atlantic Ocean is small, and that's something that I think we've really tried to press upon uh, in this series, talking about our own revolution in the 1770s and 1780s, as well as now the French Revolution and its relationship to Saint-Domingue in the 1790s. Word traveled quickly. There are dozens of ships arriving to Saint-Domingue every day from France, and when they arrive, some of the first people they meet, the sailors coming off of these ships, are enslaved peoples. So news travels fast. There is a true government of the people, by the people, for the people, now in Europe. The story of the Haitian Revolution is long, and it's winding, and it's, it's very cumbersome. And it is that way because the story is way more complicated than we'd like to believe. Whenever stories are made simple, well, they're made easy. 
we make them into something we can hold in our hands and therefore we can manipulate. But the American Revolution wasn't easy and it certainly wasn't simple. It was highly complicated. Listen to season three, you'll see that. And the Haitian Revolution is equally complex, if not more. So we should touch on life in Saint-Domingue in the 1790s to make sense of this all. Firstly, the name. Uh, the name of the colony historically has been Saint-Domingue. The term Haiti uh, comes from an original native interpretation uh, of the place before French and Spanish colonists arrived there. So that's step one. It's not Haiti yet. Saint-Domingue is the historic designation here. Number two is that a unique culture, getting back to the language barrier we mentioned in the very beginning of this episode, emerges in Saint-Domingue, which is worthy of some uh, exploration. You have basically three classes of people in Saint-Domingue. You have white plantation owners. They are the fewest people in Saint-Domingue. Again, enslaved peoples, you have one plantation owner. And they are the richest. And when I say richest, I mean some of the richest people on earth. Because they grow what everybody else on the planet wants. They can charge whatever they want for the commodity. And people will pay it. It's funny how addictive substances have that power. So you have white plantation owners. Uh, the second group are uh, a group of people that are known on the island as Le Petit Blanc. That is, the small whites. These are white people who maybe work on plantations of over as overseers. These are white people who might work as merchants uh, or dock workers. Uh, this is a poor white class. Le Petit Blanc. A third group uh, is a group of people that are a, a typical byproduct uh, of the uh, enslaved world in which Saint-Domingue exists. They are people who are the children of plantation owners and enslaved women. And I'd like to tell you uh, that they were produced through consensual relations, but the vast majority of the time, these are examples of enslaved women being forced against their will uh, to have sex with their masters, uh, which can produce children just the same. Uh, not to get into the biology of it, but uh, it's a brutal system. It's a terrible system. Uh, but unlike other places in the world, uh, the children of these enslaved women and plantation owners are given freedom. They are free people with rights. In the United States at this time, uh, if you are the child of a slave, you are also considered to be enslaved. Uh, but in Saint-Domingue, you have uh, mixed-race peoples walking freely amongst the, the, the society, amongst the streets. They engage in business. Some of them own plantations. Um, Le Petit Blanc, the poor whites, don't necessarily like them. They think they should be above them. But in some cases, the mixed-race population of Saint-Domingue uh, are more rich and more powerful. Not often, but there are cases where that happens uh, in Saint-Domingue. And, of course, the fourth class of people are the enslaved. And we mentioned this earlier, but the enslaved outnumber slave owners 12 to 1. So you have what I'm saying here is a stratified world in Saint-Domingue. Very unique, I think. In the Atlantic world, you don't see that in America, you don't see that in Brazil, uh, but you do see it in Saint-Domingue. And those differences 
will be very important as we move forward with the Haitian Revolution. Now, when in the French Revolution, you have this call for republicanism occur, the king is beheaded, all of these things begin to happen, uh, and you have a government of the people, by the people, for the people in the old world. That's never happened before. And those calls for freedom and those calls for independence uh, really begin to sweep through not just mainland France, but also the French colonial world as well. And of course, the jewel of the French colonial world is Saint-Domingue. Now, where this first emerges with the population in the Caribbean is amongst two groups. One is that mixed-race class that exists uh, in Saint-Domingue, and the other is in the Petit Blanc, that is the poor white class. They are not treated with the same respect and the same rights as the planter class, but they desire that. So they start to petition the French government for their rights, what they perceive to be their rights as they understand it, according to the values and virtues of the French Revolution. And that will put those two groups greatly at odds. The, the poor whites uh, and the mixed race, Saint-Domingue. Uh, and they'll begin to fight each other. This is not necessarily gigantic battles, but this is a political fight. It's a lot of fighting in the streets. It's a lot of jockeying for political position. People are murdered in this spell. It's a dangerous time. But all the while that happens... Another group of the, of the, what will be Haitian world, uh, is watching. And they too will see a desire for rights. But they're going to go about, uh, achieving those rights in radically different ways. And those are the enormously populous enslaved peoples of Haiti. This is a difficult story to pin down. And it's difficult because the enslaved peoples of Saint-Domingue were not keeping great notes because they were not literate. Because if they learned to read or attempted to learn to read, they would be, they would be punished, most likely killed. We cannot express enough the horrors of enslaving your fellow man. But that happens. A group of these enslaved peoples, in the middle of the night, while the uh, mixed race uh, and Le Petit Blanc Four whites are sort of scrapping against themselves. Uh, we'll meet in the mountains at a place called Boakaima. And Boakaima has become almost a sacred place in the minds of the Haitian people today. And this, again, goes back to the way we venerate and think about our own revolutionary leaders here in this country. Uh, but at Boakaima you have this agreement amongst groups of enslaved peoples that they will, to assert their own rights, uh, push back against the planter class in an orchestrated and calculated and hyper-ultra-violent uh, assault on the planter elite that had enslaved them for so many generations. There's no way to sugarcoat this. The agreement at Boakaima uh, is brutally violent, uh, and they will agree by the hundreds uh, to turn on their masters, who they outnumber 12 to 1, and annihilate them. Uh, they slaughter a pig, uh, 
as a way of communion, that is to say, as a way of keeping the secret until they have to speak of it when it actually happens. Uh, and then shortly after that, in the dawn hours, uh, it becomes uh, bloodshed en masse on the island of Saint-Domingue. Uh, you have plantation owners chopped to death with blades, farming equipment, machetes. If you've ever seen uh, the blade that's used to chop down sugarcane, believe it or not, the design hasn't changed much today as it was uh, in the 1790s because you have to be able to chop the cane, but also then you slide the blade up the edge of the cane to strip the leaves away. What I'm saying is it's a versatile tool that becomes a tremendously deadly weapon. Uh, slave owners are poisoned. They're killed in their beds. Uh, soon the enslaved peoples find weapons and ammunition, and you have a full-scale slave insurrection on the island of Saint-Domingue, the richest and wealthiest island in the Caribbean world, and really probably in the entire planet. When you think about as little land as there is, how productive it is. Now, once you have these uh, these enslaved peoples rising up, killing masters, again, there is a problem here for the white population of the island, and that problem is they are French, uh, Francais, right? And, and, and France is on the other side of the world. So there's no help coming, is what I'm saying. And even when it does start to come, it's going to take upwards of six weeks, if they're lucky, to get there. So it's a brutally violent spell uh, that is complete and thorough in its destruction. A full-scale, massive slave rebellion. The enslaved peoples in rebellion grow by the day. More and more enslaved peoples are convinced that they too should rise up. And they begin burning down the means of production that made the island so profitable. They utterly destroy the sugar plantations and the refineries on the island. Because, again, they come from a hyper-violent world. I mean, I'm not trying to, like, uh, give them a pass for the, the, the sheer brutality of this. Because there will be heads on spikes of plantation owners by when this is said and done. But that treatment was something they lived with for generations. I mean, again, they had about a three-month survival rate on the island anyway, and numerous slave ships were coming over, bringing new people every day, literally every day, because of the amount of, of death that occurred uh, just from the natural course of doing business as far as Saint-Domingue was concerned. So to see that hyper-ultra-violent reaction uh, is something that is probably expected. Um, it was a world without mercy in many ways, and that did not change when the rebellion happened. So, by the time you're dealing with 1791 here, uh, by the time you get to see, you know, uh, after a few weeks of slave rebellion, uh, the white population of the island has rushed and fled to the cities. Uh, and they've lost one city after another. Because again, they're outnumbered 12 to 1. And although they do start to go on the offensive again, it becomes extraordinarily difficult for them uh, to regain any semblance of what they had lost. There were sailors. This is no joke. The sources say it. There were sailors 10 miles from Saint-Domingue 
in the Caribbean Sea that said that they could write and read letters in the middle of the night just by the firelight of the island burning so far away. I mean, this is an incredibly dangerous uh, and enormously catastrophic event for the island. And even the people involved in the revolution, the rebellion, don't know exactly what they're starting here. And they have no idea how this will change world history. If you're keeping score at home, for all intents and purposes, um, I bet this sounds crazy and chaotic and very hard to follow. And it was. Now imagine the trouble you're having following this, and then try and imagine living through it. And you see the issue we're facing here. But what you have in Saint-Domingue is, again, the richest, wealthiest colony in the region, maybe in the world, in full-scale pandemonium. That's going to start to change. And it starts to change because uh, the large, enormous slave uprising. And this is not an army. Uh, this is not a militia. This is chaos. We'll find a spark of organization and a spark of inspiration, uh, and uh, a spark of leadership in the form of uh, a man who will become central to understanding this story, uh, Toussaint Louverture. You may have heard of Toussaint before, uh, but Toussaint Louverture uh, was born on the island of Saint-Domingue, and he was born enslaved. He learned to read largely because of the benevolence of his master. You hate to use the word benevolent when you're talking about slave owners, but his master taught him to read, and he was freed. Toussaint uh, grew up uh, an enslaved man, but saw the benefit of being free as well. So by the time of the revolution, Toussaint, as a black man, owns, I think, three plantations. He's making lots of money. He's selling goods all over the world. His sons are in France in fine universities and schools. I mean, this is the kind of guy you're dealing with. He has jumped remarkably from the fourth and lowest class of life in Saint-Domingue and gotten to you know, the third, maybe. Uh, but he did it very successfully. And early on during the slave rebellion, Toussaint's panicked because he knows that it's open season on all slave owners. And he has this fear that the people that initially owned him and ultimately freed him would be killed. Uh, and they were, you know, to use the term massacre, I don't think is, is unfair here. Uh, they would certainly be massacred along with the rest of the, of the white slave owners. So Toussaint would actually go to that plantation to protect that family. But after a while, Toussaint saw the writing on the wall here. He saw that he was unique in terms of his skin color on the island, that he had any rights at all. And he saw that ultimately, at the end of the day, freedom, if the French Revolution really was speaking truthfully, uh, was the, the key for the day. So Toussaint went to the slaves uh, in rebellion. He told them, uh, right now you have control of this island, but you'll never keep it unless you organize and you strategize and you come up with a clear goal. So Toussaint Louverture will become, not that this is not the best word, but the general, maybe you could say, of these large groups of individual men and women fighting uh, now for their freedom. Uh, Toussaint Louverture has been trained in the military arts. 
He understands the old world and the new world. And he's kind of a man in between. Uh, so Toussaint will begin to reach out to someone who can help him in a way that he can't. Now remember the geography of this region, of the Caribbean, of the former island of Hispaniola. The western part is Saint-Domingue. The eastern part, and the much bigger part, is the Spanish colony of Santo Domingo. So there are Spanish colonial troops on that side of the island, enemies of the French, by the way, who have a vested interest in seeing Saint-Domingue in the west collapse. Because presumably they'd take it over and reap the financial benefits of it. They're making money in sugar hand over fist as well. So Toussaint will reach out to the leadership of uh, Santo Domingo. And the Spanish will give them weapons. And give them supplies. And give them uniforms. And give them food. And give them all the things they need to disrupt France's control of the island. This is not done because the leadership of, of Santo Domingo wants to end slavery. They still have slaves. This is not done because the leadership of Santo Domingo really believes in the cause of Toussaint and the other rebels on the island. This is done because it causes chaos for France, and that means more money for Spain. So that's what we see. Shortly after that occurs... Again, the world is at war right now in the rest of the, of the globe. British troops will start to roll onto the shores of uh, Saint-Domingue, sensing opportunity. They see, again, their eternal enemy, the French, on their heels a bit. And they see an opportunity to expand their own British Empire, which has very rich bastions of colonial power in the Caribbean, like the Bahamas, like Bermuda, uh, like Jamaica. These are all things that Britain controls, and they want to add Saint-Domingue to their repertoire. So effectively, the French are now fighting the Spanish and the British and Toussaint and the uh, rebelling slaves on the island of Saint-Domingue. So for revolutionary France, it's all bad news. In the meantime, a delegation of the uh, rebelling slaves will travel to France. They'll give a speech. And this speech will be about how what they're doing, even though it's potentially costing uh, the French government lots of money, is nothing more than an expression of their own rights as Frenchmen. And they give this rousing speech and immediately, the French government agrees to end slavery in their colonies. Not just in Saint-Domingue, but everywhere. I mean, it's one of these sort of like, you had to be there moments when the world turned on an instant. But with that, slavery ends in France. And it seems like for the time, the rebels, the revolutionaries, whatever you want to call them, of Saint-Domingue, have just earned their freedom. Back on the island, when Toussaint discovers this, he believes this is a watershed moment. He believes this is victory at hand. And he makes a decision that for us today, if you're new to this, and I'll try to make it easy, becomes very confusing. Remember, Toussaint reached out to the Spanish for help. He reached out to the, to the British for help. Um, and he got help from both. But now, France has just ended slavery. 
And that, again, was his primary goal. So as a natural-born Frenchman, as he considered himself, all of the enslaved people spoke French. Um, he decided to switch his allegiances back to France, revolutionary France. So even though the Spanish and British helped them, it's an immediate 180. And he and his forces will go to war with the British and the Spanish on the island of Saint-Domingue. If you can freeze time for a minute and look at what the rebelling slaves who would come to be led by Toussaint Louverture had done, they have not only led a successful slave rebellion, but they won freedom, but not just freedom, but citizenship for all of the former slaves on the island. Freedom and citizenship, full protection, equal rights under the law. They did that in spectacular fashion. They won certain freedoms uh, and guarantees from the French government, full citizenship, that in the United States would have been granted to people of color for another 150 years. Not until 1954 uh, do you begin to see, in the 1960s, guarantees and protections of rights for people of color in this country. So by 150 years, that is achieved on this substantial island in the Caribbean. Uh, and the story from there is really kind of, at least for the next eight years, the Toussaint show. He establishes a constitution uh, where a person's skin color literally means nothing to their status of citizenship. Again, not the case here in the United States till the 1960s. Uh, and in what's something of a heavy-handed maneuver, he declares himself a military dictator for life. And that's not a great thing. Um, but he does it. And he starts to lose, I think, his grip, if he ever had a grip, uh, on the now free peoples of the island. Because one of the things that really bothers Toussaint is that Haiti wins its independence. Saint-Domingue wins its freedom. But you're not going to be much of a country unless uh, you're able to produce and be profitable again. And like it or not, the number one crop of this island is sugarcane. It just is. It's sitting on a fortune in sugarcane. But with the slave rebellion, sugarcane's not being produced anymore because no one's there to work the fields. And Toussaint will do something that's highly controversial by going to the men who just fought at his side and asking them to pick up their machetes, pick up their blades, and get back in the fields. They'll be paid for their work this time. Slavery is dead. Uh, but we need to produce sugarcane is the key. And very few people have any interest in doing that. They want to start their own farms. They want to grow food to feed themselves and their family. They don't want to go back to what was probably quite literally the worst uh, job in the world. And I, I hesitate to use the word job because, again, they're forced against their will and they're not paid. So Toussaint starts to lose his grip on the people. Uh, and this will go on until about 1802 when, again, uh, the larger circumstances of the greater world rear their ugly head. Uh, and this comes this time in France in the form of a man named Napoleon Bonaparte. 
Napoleon will eventually, you know, spoiler, conquer all of Europe or, or close to all of Europe. Uh, but when he takes over the French government in what's essentially a military coup, uh, he does so with certain expectations in mind. And one of them is he is not comfortable with and does not want to see uh, a, a nation of black men and women living freely. He has no issue with slavery as long as it's helping France. And he's especially galled by the events of Saint-Domingue. We have no evidence of this on our end, but Napoleon writes very clearly in his own papers that the American president, now Thomas Jefferson, is equally distasteful of the slave rebellion in Saint-Domingue and promises that if Napoleon were to send troops to the island and suppress this black republic, that America would likewise send troops too. Jefferson is a slave owner. Jefferson is from Virginia, so a southerner. Jefferson is very pro-slavery. Uh, he understands the problems with it, but he calls it a system that's like having a wolf by the ears. You don't like it, but you'll be damned if you let go. So Jefferson very clearly stands against the slave rebellion in Saint-Domingue. And at least according to Napoleon, he will aid militarily in any military expedition that Napoleon leads. Napoleon will write that, uh, and this is me paraphrasing, but you can find the quote, it's very famous, that he would send a naval squadron to Saint-Domingue, even though it doesn't help him commercially, even though it doesn't help him economically, he's doing it for the sole purpose of ensuring that there is not and will not ever be an empowered nation of black men and women that are free on this planet. I mean, he literally writes, he's doing this to eradicate the prospect of a free black country. And he'll do that. He'll send what amounts to the single largest invasion fleet in French history to Saint-Domingue. And this restarts the war for control of the island, or at least the western half of the island. Uh, this ends with Toussaint Louverture being uh, arrested. He surrenders, expecting a military tribunal as he considers himself a, a general. He never gets it. Uh, he'll die in prison in France. Uh, the war will continue by his second-in-command, uh, a man named Jean-Jacques Dessalines. Dessalines, in my opinion, a far better military commander uh, than Toussaint ever was, and far more violent than Toussaint was. Toussaint had no problem being violent, but he always believed in diplomacy first. Jean-Jacques Dessalines does not. So you're going to start to see war break out on the island again here in 1803 and 1804. Word comes from the island of Guadeloupe, another French holding, uh, that Napoleon has reinstated or legalized slavery again in the con in, in the French world. And when uh, the free peoples of, of Saint-Domingue, of Haiti, hear that, the bloodletting begins all over again. Uh, and this time, the, 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 the killing is, is just incalculably larger. That is to say, the killing of, uh, of white people on the island. Uh, and after that happens, even though Toussaint is gone, uh, you see French troops pulled out of Saint-Domingue forever. 
uh, and they'll leave, and the free Republic of Haiti is born. So, why, in a season on American rebellions, did we just spend an entire episode on the Haitian Revolution? Well, this is a whole episode in itself, but in the next five minutes or so, uh, I'm going to sort of walk you through why it's so important. When the rebels of Saint-Domingue, when the enslaved peoples of the island rose up against their masters, it signaled not just an end to the way of life on the island, but it signaled an end to the order of the world at that time. The Western world, the colonies of the Western Hemisphere, were utterly and thoroughly driven by the labors of unfree peoples. Slavery, in my opinion, is one of the worst evils ever committed on this planet. Uh, and this is a rejection of that. But even more so in the importance for this episode is that it's a rejection of it right next door to the United States. Slave rebellions have happened before. We've talked about slave rebellions in this season already in New York City. That's part of it. It's very difficult to utterly and thoroughly suppress the humanity of a person without this, this backlash. But slave rebellions are rarely successful. Unique and different about this one is the fact that not only was it successful, but it, it ended with the establishment of a free country, uh, which is something that slave owners in places like the Gulf Coast, places like Louisiana, places like Florida, um, Florida not part of the United States yet, but very quickly will be, places like the Carolinas. This is very frightening to American slave owners in the South because they heard stories about slave owners being killed in their beds, about women being raped, about their heads being displayed on pikes. Um, they've heard stories about that, and they never really believed it could happen. And then it did. And the idea was, if it could happen in Saint-Domingue, why couldn't it happen here in the United States as well? So what emerges at this time is something as historians uh, that comes to be known as Thomas Jefferson's Nightmare. And Jefferson wrote about this. Jefferson had this nightmare that enslaved peoples would rise up and murder all whites in the area. Uh, and he was worried about that because in most states in the South, Enslaved peoples did outnumber um, white slave owners. I mean, South Carolina, it was like something like almost five to one slaves to owners. So if it can happen in Saint-Domingue, which was 12 to one slave to owners, why not South Carolina? Uh, so these are the sort of ideas that really frightened American slave owners and became something of an obsession for them from 1800 basically all the way to the Civil War. Uh, but it was really hot in like the 1830s and beyond. This idea that slaves were constantly plotting against them. This idea that slave rebellion was just around the corner. Every night they could be up to something. Uh, it was a paranoia. And it was just pervasive all across the South. And I can't stress that enough. I'm not being dramatic. I'm not trying to be sensationalist. I mean, this was 
deeply embedded in the mind of the slave owner. Because again, what is you know one slave owner to 50, 60, 100 slaves? I mean, what's to stop them if they decide to rise up from wiping you out? Now, that being said, and this is the, you know, difficult part about it, was that it almost never happened. One of the things that slave owners were tremendous at, and this is not something you want to be good at, was dehumanizing the enslaved person, was taking away their humanity, taking away their desire to fight. They did it by separating families. They did it by uh, discovering if men and women were married, by taking the women and raping them and having children with them and selling them off to different plantations. This is all designed to wipe out the spark of, of God inside of you uh, that makes you feel human. They were masters of it. Thomas Jefferson uh, had an ongoing sexual relationship, and I use that term, I'm not going to say affair, because I don't know that it was consensual. He had an ongoing sexual relationship with a woman named Sally Hemings, a slave in his household, which, oh, by the way, was also the sister of his wife. Except Sally Hemings was black, and his wife was white, because his father-in-law had sexual relations with one of his own enslaved women, uh, which led to that unique situation. Um, that's real. That happened. But all the while we're going to talk about rebellions for the next few episodes, it's going to feel like one slave rebellion after another. Uh, because, again, these are important parts of the American story, and they are the big rebellions of the 1800s. You know, the big rebellions of the 1700s we talked about after the Revolution uh, were all about what kind of government we're going to be, what kind of rights do we have. But these were all questions asked by different European groups. They were questions asked by the Scots-Irish in the Whiskey Rebellion. They were questions asked by uh, the Germans in Fries's Rebellion. What kind of rights are we going to have? Who will we be in this country? That question will be asked by enslaved peoples too. And as uh, the United States ratchets up its dependence on African slavery, We're going to see by the time we get to the 1800s and the 1830s toward the Civil War, this is the ultimate question amongst Americans at the time. The issue is, of course, enslaved peoples weren't considered Americans at the time. Now, today, we do consider them Americans, uh, and their rebellions will hold the same weight. So, the Haitian Revolution, in my opinion needs to be studied way more. And I know I say that about like every topic on here. I I know I do that because I get really excited about it. Um, But this one especially is sort of a turning point in world history. Uh, And it's why we're focusing on it here in this season. Because without this episode, nothing else we talk about for the rest of the season is going to make a lot of sense. But if you're armed and ready with this, you're ready to roll with what's ahead. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.